1: Hey everyone, this is Morgan. And before we get to this week's episode of Quick to Listen, we just want to ask if you guys would take a couple minutes and support the show by filling out a survey for us. We know that many of you have supported the show by becoming subscribers. Many of you have gone on to Apple Podcasts and told us what you think about the show. Some of you have sent us emails over the years to let us know what you think about the stuff that we have talked about. All those things have been hugely supportive and this would be another really great way to support Quick to Listen. So if you're interested in just telling us a little bit more about you and also telling us a little bit about what you think about the show, go to christianitytoday.com slash podcast survey. So that is podcast survey. It is one word. christianitytoday.com slash podcast survey. That is a huge help to all of us. We do have free six-month subscriptions that you can get when you're done filling out that. So for those of you that aren't subscribers, if you're trying to just get a couple issues of CT, that would be a great way to start. And you can also be entered to win Starbucks gift cards as well. But I'm assuming most of you are just interested in supporting this show. Let me not stop you. It's ChristianityToday.com slash podcast survey. Enjoy the show. In 2014, Louisiana enacted a law requiring doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court struck down the law. Legislators said the requirement would improve the level of care that clinics provide for women. Abortion regulations in Louisiana and other conservative states have resulted in clinic closures and corresponded with falling abortion rates nationwide. While Chief Justice John Roberts voted with the majority, he did not join their decision. Instead, in a concurring opinion, he referenced a similar case the court heard in 2016. While Roberts said he believed the court ruled incorrectly in that decision, he appealed to the legal doctrine of stare decisis, a Latin phrase meaning to stand by things decided. Stare decisis requires us, absent special circumstances, to treat like cases alike, Roberts wrote. The Louisiana law imposes a burden on access to abortion just as severe as that imposed by the Texas law for the same reasons. Therefore, Louisiana's law cannot stand under our precedent. We wanted to discuss the success and failure that the pro-life movement has had in working out its cause through the legislative system and the court system. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
2: And I'm Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity
3: Today.
1: All right, Ted, let us get your gut reaction to this Decision that was handed down earlier this week.
2: I've been working at Christianity Day for almost 25 years, and over that time, I have been an eager watcher of the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, someone noted, right? You beat SCOTUS blog yesterday, and you know,
2: <laughs> yeah, by like 30 seconds or something like that. But anyway, one of the things when you kind of get nerded out on Supreme Court stuff, you know, you pay a lot of attention to oral arguments and kind of people's takeaway from that, and so. I wasn't shocked by this decision, but I was, I mean, I guess I was a little bit surprised. You know, as as someone who's staunchly pro-life, frustrated that what seems to be a fairly small regulation on abortion, once again, thrown out, get into some of the reasons why that happened. I can see some of the logic behind, but I still think, I still think it's terrible. Frustrated, but not surprised, I guess, was, was my was my takeaway. How about you?
1: So I think I'm almost the opposite with you in that I do not cover the court very closely, although I think it's one of the most (laughs) exciting times to be a journalist is during the last couple weeks of June when you know that there's going to be some very important things that are announced very early in the morning and they're going to kind of take up that day's conversation. There's something that's really like special about the anticipation about that versus other things that are in the news don't have that same kind of level of like, this is going to be happening at this time. Although I do find it strange that you don't necessarily know which cases are going to be announced. not all the time. I don't necessarily feel like I have the same level of surprises you just because I just don't follow this stuff to the same extent. And it also made me curious about what folks were hoping for. And I mean, folks, I mean, what the pro-life community was hoping for with this particular case. I mean, obviously, besides the fact that they didn't want this law struck down, I was a little bit wondering, what is the bigger ecosystem of laws and cases, policy results that they're supposed to, that they're wanting to have from this? You know, you suggested doing this for our topic for the podcast this week, and I was hopeful that it would answer some of those larger questions. Obviously, you know, It's really interesting to see which ways that John Roberts will vote. He's become a little bit of a swing vote in some of the decisions that he's made. And so from, a, I guess, a Supreme Court justice human interest point, that is interesting. But as far as everything else, I wasn't as sure about that.
2: Yeah, and I was interested to, to watch, you know, I mean, immediately after the decision, you know, you pop onto Twitter and follow your favorite kind of activists and observers. And it was interesting to see the real difference uh, of, of opinions on this case. As compared to some other recent cases, maybe we can get into that, but it was (laughs) people who were surprised by this were not surprised by some earlier decisions and uh, and vice versa. People who were really discouraged on the uh, recent sexuality decision from the court were encouraged by this decision. And the people who were encouraged were discouraged, even though they're all kind of religious conservatives. So let's get into some of that with our guest today, who is Alexandra DeSanctis. She is a staff writer for National Review, a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And she's also the host of National Review's For Life podcast, has written extensively on pro-life issues, especially abortion. So Alexandra, thanks for coming on quick to listen.
0: Yes, of course. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. So the theme of this moment is surprise. And so, Alexandra, we would just like to start with getting your own perspective on that. What did you find surprising about yesterday's decision with regards to Roberts, but also the majority and minority opinions?
0: You know, I I really didn't know what to expect. I've kind of trained myself not to get my hopes up too much when it comes to the Supreme Court, because I feel like I always end up discouraged. and I'd much rather be pleasantly surprised than having the wind knocked out of me once again. So I I really had kind of prepped myself, I thought, emotionally for a John Roberts betrayal, I guess is how I would put it. So I wasn't super shocked. And, and also, I'm sure we'll get into kind of the specifics of the law itself. And it was kind of a, a low stakes decision in some ways, given the, the content of what was actually being debated here in this case. And so I, I thought that it wouldn't bother me too much. But the fact is, it really did disappoint me because John Roberts had said in a previous case that these sorts of laws can stand. And so to see him vote with a majority while still disagreeing with their reasoning in striking down the law was, was really unfortunate, made me worry about the future of abortion jurisprudence.
2: It's probably right to call this not a 5-4 decision, right? To call it kind of more, more of a 4-1-4. I mean, it's 133 pages of opinions when you add them all up on this case. Only 16 of them were by Chief Justice John Roberts. Can you help to describe a little bit, like, what was the basis of his decision? Because he seemed to be clear, like, that he still holds what he held earlier, but it kind of came to the opposite vote. Can you Can you describe that for our listeners who may not know already?
0: A little bit of context, the law at stake in this case was in Louisiana, the submitting privileges law, very similar, though not identical to the Texas law that was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2016. And at that time, John Roberts wrote a, a very thorough, excellent dissent, disagreeing with the way that the majority had reinterpreted Planned Parenthood versus Casey to strike down the Texas admitting privileges law. And in this decision, while he sided with the, the judgment of the majority and saying that the Louisiana law must be struck down. He explicitly said, I still believe that whole woman's health was wrongly decided. But essentially, the fact is that it was decided that way. And because it's precedent, we have to uphold it absent some kind of very o- obvious reason why it needs to be overturned. And to me, my thought is, well, perhaps the obvious reason is it's wrong. And you yourself think it's wrong. A Very recent precedent, too. So you would think that would be more grounds to, to consider reversing it very shortly thereafter, but he's just kind of resting there on stare decisis.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I've seen a lot of commentary on over the last 24 hours, we're we're taping this Tuesday afternoon, is a lot of observations about areas in which Roberts did not find precedent to be overwhelming, where he set aside this kind of stare decisis. It seems to be, the kind of consensus seems to be, he's more prone to invoke stare decisis on kind of social issues like abortion and more likely to kind of overturn precedent on economic issues. He may be more of an economic conservative than a social conservative. Does that sound close to you? I mean, I'm, I'm curious on your, for your read on that.
0: You know, I'm not sure exactly what it is about Roberts' philosophy in terms of which issues he has a particular opinion on, but I think the best way to read him at this point, given you're certainly correct that he, he's overturned precedent in the past on other issues, but he's very hesitant to do so when it comes to abortion, clearly. And I think the reason for that probably is less his own personal views about one issue versus another and more about he's an institutionalist and he is willing to do what he thinks it takes and, and decide the way he thinks he need to, to uphold the reputation of the court. And for some reason, I think he just has it in his mind that if the court were to start walking back its abortion jurisprudence, this would be, you know, make the court appear political. And to me, I think it appears much more political when you have a chief justice saying, Court was wrong to decide this, but we must stand by it so you'll continue to respect us. That makes really very little sense to me. But from his, I guess, people I trust and from my own reading of what he's done in the past, I think a particular area of the law just makes him very fearful about sort of disturbing public opinion or the status quo
2: did invoke that we need to do it for the kind of trust in the institution. That could cut both ways with kind of the undercutting the trust in the local legislatures that are passing these laws and, and attempting to kind of thread the needle in terms of what, what will pass constitutional muster accord with the Supreme Court precedent. I wanted to get a little bit into some of the details of this particular case. We mentioned a little bit, one of them was about this question about doctors needing to have admitting privileges. Tell me a little bit more about that. I don't know, in a lot of cases, who needs admitting privileges. I mean, I know that in some places, I don't know if dentists do, I don't know if midwives do. Like, is this is this unusual to require admitting privileges for a position like an abortionist?
0: It's certainly not in Louisiana, which was the question at stake here. I'm not familiar enough with the laws in other states to say how common this is. But I do know for a fact that in the state arguments in favor of this policy, they were pointing out that Louisiana already requires every other what they call ambulatory surgical centers in the state. Any doctor who, who practices medicine there must have admitting privileges at a local hospital. The idea being, if you're having people in for outpatient patient surgery, there's always a higher risk with these types of procedures. You want to ensure that people can get into a hospital more easily for follow-up care if they need it. So if you're performing, you know, like you mentioned, a dental surgery of some kind, you must have admitting privileges. In Louisiana at a hospital within 30 miles. And so this policy was essentially closing a loophole that existed in Louisiana law that was exempting, in effect, abortionists from that mandate and, and saying, you know, if you're performing abortion, surgical abortions, for some reason, you don't actually have to have these admitting privileges. And it was really just trying to, to even out the law and make sure that all outpatient surgeries were, were covered by this sort of policy.
2: People supporting this law in Louisiana basically argued this is significantly different than the earlier case that the Supreme Court had decided. Can you tell me a little bit about what they said was different about that case?
0: Right. So my understanding of the argument the state was making in favor of this policy, what the Fifth Circuit did, the Fifth Circuit upheld the Louisiana law last year. That's why it ended up going to the Supreme Court. And what they found was that the law would not the effect of the law would not be to close any clinics. So in Texas, part of the rationale for striking down the admitting privileges law had been that if this policy went into effect, some, you know, more than a dozen abortion clinics would have to close because the doctors wouldn't have been able to get admitting privileges. And Louisiana pointed out that would not be the case here. And so, you know, essentially it wouldn't affect women's ability to obtain an abortion because the doctor should have no trouble getting admitting privileges at a local hospital. And so they tried to distinguish the law on those grounds.
2: And that was basically the the bulk of the dissent from the more conservative justices, right?
0: That's right. And I I will point out too, I think it's worth touching on a a secondary issue in the case was whether or not abortionists have standing to challenge a policy like this. Something in Justice Clarence Thomas's dissent, quite a bit of it was pointing out that the majority opinion and Justice Chief Justice Roberts barely even addressed the question of standing, but the state of Louisiana made a pretty compelling case that. If the, the policy was a problem for women, it ought to be women themselves challenging the regulation and saying it was somehow impeding their access to abortion. But in fact, it was abortion providers challenging the regulation on behalf of women. And as the state pointed out, I think pretty compellingly, oftentimes abortionist interests are directly at odds with a woman seeking an abortion. Yeah, sure.
2: That question of like, can the person being regulated stand in for the person who ostensibly the rules are being created to protect from problems with the person being regulated? That's a big question. One question I have there, I remember this came up in, I believe, oral arguments, was that the standing question kind of came in a little bit on the later end of of argumentation as this case made it through the courts that initially Louisiana had agreed that the doctors had had standing and then added it. Does that accord with your read? I mean, would this maybe have been more successful? Had Louisiana argued it better? Had maybe standing been brought up sooner? I mean, how much of it was the actual argumentation of this case?
0: I believe that that was an issue they brought in only when the case got to the Supreme Court. And I think, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a very short dissent, but part of what he recommended was that the lower court reconsider both the question of standing and the policy based on new fact finding. The argument being, whatever we talked about here wasn't really considered by the lower court and ought to be. But I think that that's definitely the case. But at the same time, the the court did agree to take the case and that cross petition dealing with standing. And so you'd think they would feel some obligation to address it in their opinion.
2: You mentioned the Thomas dissent a minute ago. You know, Thomas's dissent is notable not just because he really hammered on standing, but also for this line where he says... The Supreme Court rulings on abortion are egregiously, or pardon my guess, grievously wrong. The quote here is, the court created a right to abortion out of whole cloth without a shred of support from the Constitution's text. He said the president's quote are grievously wrong and should, should be overruled. I have seen some discussion where pro-lifers are very frustrated that Thomas was all by himself on that. It is a dissent that no other conservative justice signed on to. How do you feel about that?
0: I loved the dissent. I really appreciated it because I, I felt like you know someone in the room is saying what needs to be said here, and of course I would have been overjoyed to see even just a, the four dissenting justices sign on to that dissent. But I don't think you know I've seen some some arguments that the fact that no one else signed on to that dissent means none of them agree with it, or even the other more conservative or originalist justices therefore must accept the the framework of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I don't think that's the case. I think you have you're dealing with different temperaments, different judicial philosophies. And, and someone like Justice Alito, I, I don't think you could really make the case that he's a fan of the logic of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but he also isn't a Justice Thomas who comes out guns blazing every time he has a chance to sort of knock down the foundations of poor jurisprudence. So if the case before him had to do with Casey, I, I'm pretty confident he would be willing to go against that. So while, you know, yeah, obviously I would have loved to see more support for what Thomas wrote, I wouldn't necessarily read the tea leaves in a, a terribly melodramatic way.
2: One of the funny things for me is seeing this morning so many of the more liberal side who should be overjoyed at this decision, or at least as, as happy about the decision as pro-lifers are frustrated by the decision. There's all this really nervous hand-wringing that actually Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he may have seemed to rule the right way, but he's really actually playing this very strategic Game and he's really setting up for an undercutting of Roe v. Wade so that all the kind of liberal voices I'm hearing this morning are more nervous than they are, than they are joyful. I'm wondering, among those who are arguing that Roberts is setting up for a larger pro-life victory, let's just imagine that for a second. There seem to be two different camps. One view is that Roberts, his signal to pro-lifers was, you know, go big. And the line there that people are pointing to is this, where Robert says, we weren't asked to reconsider Casey, Casey kind of being the new Roe, right? And Robert says, we actually weren't asked whether we think that Casey and Roe were rightly decided, so we are not going to be addressing that in our, in our decision. And the idea being, if you'd asked us to reconsider Casey, I might have voted to reconsider Casey. Other view that I've seen is that rather than... Robert signaling to go big is that he is signaling to pro lifers to go small. And the line there that people seem to be pointing to is this one where he says, you know, Casey, when we found one restriction out of the four that was brought to the court unconstitutional, like, you know, one out of four, that's, you know, fairly small. And so the idea being, hey, look, next time, you know, the problem here is you brought me a case that was really close to one that we had just ruled on. So keep bringing me cases and we can chip at this through a whole lot of smaller restrictions on abortion. One question, do either of those make sense to you? B, which do you think might be a better read? I guess the bottom line question is like, are there prospects for overturning Roe v. Casey or is the future small state regulations?
0: Well, I I don't really buy into either of those theories as much as I would like to. I I would love the idea. I'd love to, to make myself believe that Roberts has some kind of complex vision for actually getting some of these egregious precedents overturned. If one of the two were more plausible, I would say I think the former is, because I think if you're thinking the way he is from an institutionalist point of view, it makes sense for the court to really narrowly focus on precisely what it's being asked to do. Here, it wasn't being asked to talk about Casey or to overturn Casey, but he was incorrect that the uh, state hadn't asked him to overturn Whole Woman's Health. And so to me, the fact that he was presented an opportunity a mere four years later to uphold a law that he believed ought to have been upheld four years ago, that he says he still believes ought to have been upheld four years ago, but wouldn't do it, tells me there's not really some kind of grand strategy at work here, because why would he uphold a a four-year-old precedent, but be willing to overturn a a multiple decades-old precedent now if the right case came across his lap. That just doesn't really make sense to me as much as I would like to think that. So to the second part of your question, do pro-lifers go big or do they work in an incremental fashion? I I kind of have always been of the mind, at least as long as I've been following all this as a non-lawyer, you kind of have to do a little bit of both. So maybe you have a state like Alabama that tries to pass an almost total abortion ban, Uh, They try to get that before court and see where it goes. But at the same time, there's about to be a circuit split, I think, uh, between the Eighth and Fifth Circuit on whether states can ban selective abortion. So whether you can have an abortion after the fetus is diagnosed with Down syndrome, that kind of very incremental case might come before the court. You might get a win on that. So I think you really do. If you're looking at this as a pro-lifer, you've got to try chipping away at this legal regime bit by bit and, and just get as many things before the court as you can and hope for the best. Because very clearly, you can't count on anything, really.
1: Alexandra, I'm glad that we're starting to shift this conversation into talking about strategy because so I think that has a lot of really interesting elements to it. You know, I wanted to focus in about how the pro-life movement has worked to advance their cause through state legislatures. And you were just talking a little bit right there about different laws that may be targeted at specific things. What types of laws have been successful and which are the ones that have been struck down more often?
0: If you remember back to last year, we saw a a huge number, well, maybe 10 or so, but seems like a huge number given the current policy landscape, a number of cases or states rather that passed heartbeat bills. And these are bills that prohibit abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is usually about six weeks into pregnancy. So this is a a pretty bold pro-life policy. And then we watched as one by one courts, at least at the very least, enjoined these policies while the challenges were going through the courts. And so none of them actually took effect. And I don't think we can really expect any of them to take effect. And I think that's part of the problem with policies that actually go big in a sense, you're just almost always going to see them struck down because under the, the framework of Casey, you can't get away with very much as a, a pro-life legislature. You just aren't going to be able to put those policies into effect. But the, the good thing about trying is you're going to get them before court and maybe eventually one of them will be upheld. You just kind of never know. So to the other, other part of your question, to the extent that we've seen states permitted to, to have regulations in effect, it's been things like a, a 20-week ban or around then, you know, many states will regulate abortion later in pregnancy. And that's permitted under the Casey framework. But the question is, what types of exceptions have to be put in place? And so that's kind of a a little known aspect of the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions is that even if a state is permitted to regulate abortion, they always have to have this maternal health exception, which means that if a woman's, you know, an abortionist determines a woman's mental health or familial health or financial health or or something sort of vague category like this is deemed to be at risk, she can get an abortion up until birth. So even though that's not really written into policy, there's always that kind of backdoor that allows abortion on demand.
3: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on
1: CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
3: 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on.
1: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak.
3: And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
1: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Would you say that in general, in the pro-life advocacy movement, there has been broad support for trying to chip away at abortion rights? Or is there frustration or even tension at times over this strategy?
0: I think there's certainly been tension. And, And last summer, actually, you know, I referenced those heartbeat bills. That was a really good example of the sort of difference in perspective, even among pro-lifers on what the best legal strategy is, because you had some people saying, you know, really excited about these heartbeat bills. Obviously, you know, all pro-lifers would support having such a policy in place, but there's sort of this view, the incrementalist view that you have to start kind of with a, a broader restriction. You know, if the, the court's going to strike down an admitting privileges law, how on earth are you going to get away with putting a heartbeat bill in place? So we really need to start with kind of bigger picture broader restrictions, try to get the court to slowly overturn things like Whole Woman's Health. But especially, you know, now that we've seen this decision in June Medical, the other argument is gaining more esteem, which is, look, the court's not even willing to overturn Whole Woman's Health. Why on earth would we you know keep playing small ball like this, in a sense, and fighting over things like putting restrictions on abortion clinics? Let's just actually argue against Roe, go right for the heart of what's wrong with our abortion jurisprudence and force courts to answer that question.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting to me that we see this narrative, at least in the coverage that I've had, where it seems like state, you know, working through the state legislature has been successful in many ways. Is there some sort of asterisk that basically says it has to be a red state? Or is this something that is finding success in bluer states as well?
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the, I think, lesser covered aspects of the admitting privileges law at stake in Louisiana in this June medical case is that it was passed on a bipartisan basis, introduced by a Democratic female legislature, and signed into law by a Democratic governor. Same thing with a heartbeat bill. Louisiana passed a heartbeat bill last summer. So it's certainly not exclusive to red states. There are places around the country where you still have, West Virginia would be another example, where you have pro-life Democrats at the state level. But I think by and large, you are certainly seeing a big picture shift in the Democratic Party very far away from any kind of abortion restrictions whatsoever. And I think as a result, these sorts of pro-life policies tend to be more concentrated in red states for the most part, though not exclusively.
2: We've got some good news that's happening alongside of this that we've talked a lot about. And one thing is that the US abortion rate has declined by more than 50% in 1980 it continues to decline fairly fairly dramatically. I am kind of curious about what your read on that is. Is that state-based regulation is that winning hearts and minds? Is that kind of a little bit of everything? What's going on there that abortions are decreasing even even as Supreme Court rulings kind of keep going against pro-lifers.
0: I do think there is certainly some changing of hearts and minds, you know, public opinion on abortion tends to stay relatively stable, but over if you look at kind of the the macro view over the course of decades, the number of Americans who support some kind of abortion restrictions is certainly growing, especially among younger Americans. You'll see openness to things like a 20-week ban or a ban on abortion of fetuses diagnosed with down syndrome. So around the edges, I think you are seeing some change in public opinion. But I, I also, when whenever people talk about the abortion rate, I do think that's a really hopeful sign. And, and the pro-abortion side often likes to attribute this to just an increased use of contraception. But in fact, there's also a, a higher rate of women who choose to carry an unintended pregnancy to term. And so to me, that definitely shows there's some changing of hearts and minds in the culture on this issue.
2: I was interested to see the decline chart on the decline of abortion and then also a chart on the rates of unintended pregnancy. There were a number of surprises there. One, I was really surprised to see the the significant up- uptick in uh, rates of unintended pregnancy going up between 2001 and 2008 and then and then a bit of a drop off. Actually, a fairly steep drop off after 2008. But then juxtaposed against that, like the uh, abortion rate still still continues to decline. So it, those seem to be operating a little bit independently, that decline in abortions is is not necessarily dependent upon a decline in intended pregnancy.
0: I think it's certainly worth celebrating. But I also do, I mean, at the same time, when you're seeing a decline from, you know, we're now below a million abortions every year in the country, it still is kind of a, a grim thing to celebrate. But it is a positive trend. I will say that. So
1: another thing I wanted to bring up, Alexandra, is that, of course, in our country, there seems to be this... Just huge outpouring of energy and attention that is just given to federal politics every four years, especially, but definitely in the in between years as well. And I'm wondering, how much do federal politics matter when it comes to fighting abortion, in your opinion?
0: I think it matters quite a bit in terms of public opinion and sort of shaping the conversation that we have about abortion. It matters a great deal if you remember back in February, which feels like a million years ago to me, but there was a fight in the Senate over Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, a pro-life bill brought by Senator Ben Sass. And I think those types of conversations happen because we're trying to move policy at the national level, because, you know, we're having fights over what abortion is and, you know, where we draw the lines about when human life starts to count. I think in terms of what comes before courts and what actually, you know, goes into effect, what actually matters for the everyday American in terms of how they think about abortion is policy at the state level. I think that even among pro-lifers, there are plenty of people who think you couldn't even really pass a ban on abortion through the U.S. Congress. There might not be authority for that. So I do think if this is going to be a successful fight for pro-lifers, we do have to think first and foremost of the kind of micro-level local state policy first.
2: I am curious along that kind of national effort to bring the Supreme Court back into it, how hard is it to get an abortion case to the Supreme Court? are they more likely or less likely? I've heard different things in the, in the wake of this decision about it may be a really long time before the Supreme Court hears another abortion case, or I've heard these things come up all the time. What's what's your read on how hard it is just to get them to hear, to hear one of these cases?
0: Well, they're certainly asked to consider it quite a bit far more often than they agree to hear cases having to do with abortion. And then I think the last time there was a major case dealing with abortion was Whole Woman's Health, the case we've been talking about from 2016. There was a case a couple of years ago having to do with crisis pregnancy centers and whether they could be required by states to advertise for abortion. But that's, I think it was decided on free speech grounds, not and First Amendment grounds. So it wasn't really had nothing to do with abortion rights. Yeah, I think that the court is unfortunately pretty averse to considering these questions. And if you remember back, I believe it was at some point last year, the Supreme Court was asked to consider a challenge to Indiana's discrimination abortion Ban, which prohibited women from, I think, as I mentioned, these Down syndrome abortion bans or sex selective abortion bans. And there was one of these in Indiana that the court was asked to consider, and they denied cert. And Justice Thomas wrote this wonderful dissent saying, you know, we have to be willing to take these questions. We created this whole landscape of jurisprudence. Now we have to adjudicate it, and we refuse to do that. We avoid it because we're afraid of being controversial or. Dealing with anything having to do with Planned Parenthood because we just don't want to look political, but we have to consider these questions. He's sort of a, a lone voice of sanity on this, but they do tend to be, I think, pretty averse to trying to considering these things that appear political.
2: And that's also a majority decision about whether whether to grant certiorari.
0: I think you need four to grant
2: cert. You need four. Okay. Yeah. Great.
1: Earlier this year, I think it was this year, you wrote a piece about some of the lesser known groups and communities and activists in the pro-life movement. And I'm curious why you did this story and how you found your subjects. And maybe you can share a little bit about who you profiled.
0: I'd love to. This is one of my favorite pieces I've ever written, actually. And I, I had the idea to do it, worked on it for quite a while and ended up interviewing, I think, about 20 different pro-life leaders and activists. And, and the thrust of the piece to me was I've been covering abortion now for about four years for National Review. and in the course of doing that, not only do I do my own reporting, my own commentary, but I read a lot of commentary and a lot of reporting on this topic. And I just found it to be so deficient because you see so often, both in kind of the supposedly straight media coverage, but also from politicians and pro-choice activists, you just always see this line that the only people who oppose abortion are white Christian males who are trying to control women's bodies. Only misogynists oppose abortion. Only Christians oppose abortion, know that people who are trying to impose their religious values on you, white supremacists, just these absolutely ridiculous arguments. And as someone very familiar, increasingly familiar with the pro-life movement, I just know for a fact that this isn't the case. But the voices who disprove this argument are either ignored or actively silenced and attacked by abortion supporters. And so I wanted to write a piece interviewing and speaking with some of the people who disprove this totally false narrative from you know African-American pro-lifers who have a, a really vast pro-life network that I I learned a great deal about to feminist pro-lifers, non-religious pro-lifers, so secular atheist Americans who oppose abortion for scientific reasons, because they know it takes a human life, is a very informative experience going through, trying to find, you know, build up contacts in these different groups, getting the perspective from these people who really do disprove the false narrative. You know, even just to take one example, I had no idea, and like I said, I've been covering this for a few years now, but I had no idea the extent to which particularly Protestant, Black Baptist activists and leaders in the African-American community are working so hard on this issue. They have just an immense network of people doing a really grassroots work. It's not political work. It has nothing to do with who you vote for, really. It's just going within their networks, talking to people in the African-American community about how bad abortion is for them and how, you know, saying these women are not choosing abortion because they see it as freedom or a way out of trouble. They see it as something difficult, something they don't want to have to choose, but they don't feel like they have other options. And so even just learning about that type of work was really eye-opening for me. And and I hope the piece has helped people to realize just how false this pro-choice narrative is.
1: As someone who is extremely familiar with this movement and what's happening both at the grassroots level and also at the political level. What are some of the stories that you would recommend that we be watching in the next couple of years?
0: Like I mentioned in passing, there's probably going to be a circuit court split on the question of these discrimination abortion bans, which is certainly worth paying attention to because, you know, the question of, down syndrome abortion, or sex selective abortion, or even race selective abortion, is a really touchy topic, and it's something that's very difficult for people who support abortion to grapple with. Because on the one hand, there's this kind of argument: if you take Down syndrome abortion, for example, some people would say, "Well, it's compassionate to to end these lives because it's going to be a life of suffering." But that's that's a really tricky argument to make. It's very a touchy topic. But I think having those conversations in the public square really helps to expose how terrible abortion is because, of course, it's not compassionate to kill someone who's going to face a particular type of suffering, but it sort of opens people's eyes to the fact that all abortion is some kind of discriminatory killing, regardless of the the reason it's chosen. And so I think those sorts of debates, should they come before courts, would be a a good point for the pro-life movement to sort of open people's eyes a little bit. So that would be one way. And then I guess... I guess I would keep my eyes peeled for debates in the conservative legal world about how we revisit perhaps what types of justices we support, what kinds of questions we ask potential nominees to answer having to do with Roe and Casey. And I guess Roberts was a little bit before this new wave of originalist appointees. But I think you see, uh, rightly so, a lot of disappointment with the way he's turned out as a chief justice.
1: Yeah, as much as I would just like love to dedicate a podcast to John Roberts himself, I think he could probably handle one if we really dove in deep. Are there any lessons that you are thinking to be learned from the pro-life community should learn about something like a John Roberts nomination or supporting folks similar to him? Or does it feel like too much of an anomaly?
0: My understanding is that the sort of conservative legal community was very different at the time that he was appointed. I know it wasn't terribly long ago, but it was just a a different perspective. It wasn't shaped in the way that it is now by this very originalist, heavy textualist, heavy sort of push. And maybe that's something Ted would want to speak to more. But I think he he has kind of turned out to be exactly the sort of chief justice that Republicans at one point would have liked to see. And it just so happens that we've community has evolved in a way that we would prefer he not be that way anymore.
2: That actually leads into it. Maybe we can close here, but I am interested just on your thoughts on. We, we haven't really talked a whole lot about some of the religious aspects of this. I mean, obviously, the pro life movement is, is made up of a number of different folks. There's a strong, you know, ecumenical uh, Protestant Catholic coalition on this. Uh, there's also a lot of nuns of both kinds, the no religion atheist folks who are all uh, in pro life, not tons of them, but some of them. But I am curious, you know, there has been this kind of thread running through some of the pro life world of don't make this a religious issue talk about this just as a as a human rights issue i'm wondering just as you, we see some maybe some of the common cause breakdown between the pro life folks who are strongly pro life for religious reasons and maybe people who are more on the libertarian right yeah just as we see some some political coalitions breaking down do you think that there should be a shift in the way we talk about religious commitments and pro-life efforts? Does that discussion need to change?
0: I think that the religious right has rightly found a home for itself in the Republican Party and in the idea that originalist conservative justices are going to bring about the, the policy aims that we support by and large, because I think Christian ideals are line up with the natural law and natural rights tradition of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And so I think that's, for the most part, been a pretty successful alliance. But I do think that that means we're in a party with and in a legal movement with people who don't really have the same priorities as us. And that's going to turn out with us getting disappointed. And I I don't know that that means there's a better way of going about it or a better alliance available to us. I think we just have to unfortunately accept that there are going to be disappointments along the way because we don't live in a country where Christianity is embraced by a large enough number of the people to have that be our laws and our tradition entirely. And so I do think there are ways to try and I guess, demand more from the partnerships we've made, not always be sort of the redheaded stepchild, I guess, to, to use a phrase. We seem to always be the ones having to compromise rather than the ones fighting for what we want and getting our priorities listened to. We have, a, you know, the pro-life movement has our heads padded and then everyone goes on to pass some kind of Republican economic policy. We do have the right to ask for more and to want more, but I don't know that that means we should try and sort of cast off the alliance entirely and, and look for help somewhere else.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing all this insight and knowledge, you were definitely the expert I was hoping to bring in. So I really appreciate it, Alexandra. For people who have feedback for us, please send us an email. We are at podcasts at christianneedtoday.com. We are also on Twitter at ctpodcasts.
2: Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak part of the show where we read people's letters. This letter this week is from Elizabeth Anderson of Everett, Washington, close to my old stomping grounds. And here's what she said. Thank you for this week's podcast about COVID and Christianity in the Navajo community. I really resonated with Donnie's words about how he and others are encouraging young Navajo Christians to blend their Navajo culture with their faith rather than separating the two. As a white music teacher in the Seattle area, we talk a lot in my professional community about what is known in education as, quote, culturally responsive teaching. This movement essentially encourages teachers to confront the ways that their cultural assumptions cause them to cast certain ways of acting, speaking, communicating, and certain kinds of music and dance and expression as right or normal, and others as wrong or other. When in fact, one category is just my culture and the other is another culture recognizing that white Americans and Christians have a culture rather than just assuming that our way of doing things is the normal way. has been shown by research to be critical for students of different races and cultures to succeed in school. Church leaders and staff would do well to consider this and how they teach their congregations as well. So I loved hearing about specific ways that is happening in Donnie's work. and I hope that his words will inspire church leaders around the country to do the same. Thank you. Elizabeth for that letter. Please also get in touch with us. If you are listening to this podcast, we want to hear what you liked, what you didn't like. You should send us a letter at Podcasts at com.
1: Please do it. It is really great to get letters. So that is a great way to get your voice heard and appear on our show. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. When we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy, you're up, Ted.
2: thing that probably brought me the most joy over the last week was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. It was great. We had had great plans to get together as a big family and go on a cruise. Obviously, cruises are not happening. Get-togethers across many state lines are not really happening, but we were able to put together a Zoom party for my folks with dozens of their friends throughout the country. My parents' family moved around a lot growing up. So we had a kind of a this is your life kind of party with people from from all different stages of their life. And it was just really great to see my parents celebrated and just to celebrate 50 years of their commitment, vows, and love for each other. So that was it was fun to put together and it was fun just to just to celebrate for a few hours on Saturday. So that was that was my my moment of joy, my precious moment. It was truly a precious moment.
1: It was really cool. Did you say your brothers all came too?
2: Yeah, my brothers were part of a Zoom party. In fact, one of my brothers, man, he he really did a lot of lifting for it. So that's I was grateful for that as well. Got brothers uh, on two opposite ends of the country, so we don't get to get together uh, all that often, so it is kind of fun. I'm zoomed out as much as anybody else. I, <laughs> I'm wiped out with Zoom calls, but it is nice to have a truly life giving Zoom call where we're just hanging out together. And we had games. You know, I, I put together like a newlywed game game for them, and it was asking people trivia questions about my parents' marriage, which was fun. Very cool. How about how about you, Morgan? What was your precious moment for the week?
1: My precious moment was probably attending. This march on Sunday that was organized by the Asian American Christian Collaborative, and it was essentially about trying to get Asian Americans to reflect on their relationship with the African American community. And it was, I told someone there, I was like, I feel like this is the quietest march ever. And they were like, it's not a march, it's a prayer walk. And I think that was actually a pretty good descriptor of what it was, where there were different stations along the route. The route went from a historic church in Chicago's Chinatown to another historic church in Bronzeville, which is a historically African-American neighborhood. It was about a two-mile route. And the idea of it was, you know, it was really trying to be very explicitly and intentionally faith-based. So lots of prayers, worship music, and trying to create just space to kind of talk about what has often been a, a kind of tense relationship between the two communities. Obviously here, since it was in Chinatown, I was talking about the Chinese-American community, but Asian-Americans at large have often had a tense relationship with the African-American community. And so this was a time where there was, you know, hopefully, you know, a step towards healing, if I can say that. Yeah, also just was nice to see people that organized it. In fact, I ended up hanging out with Watson Jones, who was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago for a while after that. so that was cool and people can find me on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l
2: and i'm i'm at i'm at ted olson at ted olson t-e-d-o-l-s-n on twitter and i appreciate people pinging me with you know after i talked about midsummer a few weeks ago i got some some pings of other people who had celebrated midsummer and that was joyful to hear about so thanks for that alexandra how about you
0: something that's brought me joy lately just yesterday evening i had a couple of friends over for dinner. I haven't had anybody over in a very, very long time in Virginia. I live here in Northern Virginia and things are opening up a little bit. So I've been able to do some you know, outdoor patio eating and things of that sort, but I hadn't had anyone over yet. So I, I cooked a meal I'd never made before. Turned out great. Had friends over. What did you make? Um, I made chicken. It was a, an orange honey baked chicken. Turned out great. Definitely will be a repeat. I recommend it yeah, just to be with people after so long was really, I tend to be, you know, very happy at home and reading and doing my own thing. But even I am, am getting ready for some, <laughs> some sustained social company here. So it was nice to have them over.
1: Good. I'm glad that you were able to spend time with other people. All right. Where can people find you outside of this podcast?
0: My Twitter is Zan underscore DeSanctus. That's X-A-N underscore my last name DeSanctus. And I can also be found at National Review Online.
1: All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. The transcript is done by Bunia Shola. And you can leave us feedback. We're on Apple Podcasts. That is the best place to leave us feedback. But you can also tell us what you thought about this episode at podcasts at Christianitytoday.com. We do like getting your emails, so please send us to them. And this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. So check us out there. We will see you all next week. Bye.
0: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive
1: transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective and
0: thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.